This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well good morning Anchor. How's everyone doing this morning? Great. Good to see everyone. Just get my... What was funny about that? Did I miss something? Thank you Matt. I'm very well. Very well. Well, I'd love to add my welcome to Brad's. It is great to see you here this morning. For those of you who are in the room and for everyone watching online, we truly do miss you and look forward to seeing you in person as well in the coming weeks. Well, as Brad mentioned, um, we are in a series called Generous. And uh, last week, I announced that uh, we didn't just want to talk about generosity. We actually wanted to practice it as a church. And so we've launched the Generous Project, which we are, as a church, putting forward Uh, $5,000 towards some need in our community, and we're inviting submissions from our church family um, to spend that money. We want to empower you to bless our local community in our city. And so uh, if you have ideas, if you have seen needs, if there are things that you're involved in that you think, you know what, this need um, would benefit from some funding, this need could be met by, um, by whatever means possible, we would love to hear about it. So I haven't had any submissions this week. You can jump onto our Anchor City Facebook group or hit your e-news. The link to that uh, submission is there and our Board of Ops look forward to receiving all of those submissions. They are um, due on Wednesday the 17th of November. I think that date might be right. It's It's the Wednesday before our next board meeting. So Please, please, please make sure you get those submissions in. And for those of you who are thinking, oh, I've seen this thing, I'm not really sure it qualifies, just put it in. All right, just put it in, see what happens. You may think, well, it, it does, it's not going to use a full $5,000. That's okay. We may identify a number of projects and split that money up, but we just want your submissions. So please ask God to open your eyes to the needs that you see in our community Uh, And let's step forward in faith and empower our church to be able to meet some of those needs. We would love to do that. The second thing I wanted to chat very briefly about before we jump into the Word this morning is our Build the House campaign. So if you uh, have a brochure on your chair somewhere next to you, I'd love you to pick this one up. If you didn't get to take this home last week, please take this home today and make sure you read through it because there's some really important information in here. Last week I was able to announce that we have a very generous donor and supporter who is willing to do a matching grant scheme for us that every dollar that is given will be matched with another dollar. So that means if you give $5, our generous supporter will give another $5. If you give $100, they will also give $100. It means that your gift of $200 is actually a gift of $400. Your gift of $500 is actually a gift of $1,000. Yes, you get the maths. Your gift of $2,000 is actually worth four. What an incredibly generous act that, um, that we are the recipients um, of. And so I would love you to prayerfully um, consider the part that you can play in helping us lay a foundation so that we can purchase some property here in our city and embed ourselves in our community. You know, I've been thinking about um, the idea of permanence and transience. Permanence and transience. And uh, one of the metaphors that uh, I remember talking a lot about in the early days of planting Anchor was that of um, Target at uh, Broadway and uh, a market stall at uh, Glebe Markets at the public school on Sunday morning. 
And I said that I felt very much um, we were like a market at Glebe Markets, like a a vendor at the markets there who has a little pop-up tent that they put up and they sell T-shirts. And all of the other established churches in the area were like Target. They're going to be there every week. And uh, people just weren't really sure whether or not we would be there week after week. And, and we had seven different venues in the first two years until we finally landed here at Factory. And, and even when we got here, it was like, well, the next week we're at Enmore and the next week after that we're at Metro and who knows where we'll be. And people still turn up to all different venues hoping that we will be there. So make sure you read the social media. Um, <laughs> but, um, but the metaphor that kind of came to mind was this idea of we were a market store. And there was a sense of transience about our church, that we were never quite solidified in the, in the same way that other established churches who had property, who had buildings. Um, and that comes with all of its own problems, right? But um, the metaphor of transience is something that, um, that I want to break. I want to be able to say to our city, to our local community, as a church, we're here to stay. We're not like the market that you can buy a t-shirt from and then there's a problem with it. You go back and you can't return it because they're not there the next week. We're here to stay. We're committed to this city. We love our city. We want to bless our city. We want to be a presence here in the inner west, in the inner city for good and to lift up the name of Jesus. And one of the ways of doing that, by no means the only way, but one of the ways of doing that is having a footprint in the community, having property with signage that says, hey, we're here. Because at the moment, the only time that people get signage is where they drive past Victoria Road here between the hours of 9.30 and 12.30 when our signs are out the front. So there's a two-hour window that people know that Anchor Church exists and perhaps online. But, but other than that, people have no idea that we're here. They have no idea that we care. And one of the ways of saying to our city, we love you, we care for, we're here to stay is by having some permanent space. The other thing that came to mind about permanence and transience is not so much about our collective identity, but our individual identity as members of this church. You know, it's no secret that Anchor is a highly transient community. And for many of you, you will be here for, say, two to three years and you know, perhaps when uni finishes, you'll move on. Or when you get another job in Melbourne or New York or London or wherever, wherever God happens to send you around the world, you, you'll move on. And, and thank the Lord some of you come back. Amen. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the community here that we have at Anchor is highly transient. Just this week, I was at a funeral and uh, it, was, it was at my, my home church, a church that sent us to plant Anchor nine years ago. And the same nanas that were serving morning tea 20 years ago when I first turned up were still there serving morning tea at the funeral. There's just something about um, churches in the suburbs where there, there is a staying power, a sticking power, that people are there for their whole life. Well, Anchor is very different. Um, and that's not a good or bad thing. That's just a different thing. We're a different church. We're a different community trying to reach a different part of the city. But our community is highly transient. And... Uh, you know, even people who come visit from Southwest, we only sent them in, in January this year, like, I don't know anyone anymore. Uh, that's the nature of our church community. But one of the things that is true about a transient community is that it's very difficult to sow a long-term vision. Because you might be thinking, well, I don't know when this property purchase is going to happen sometime in the future. I may not be here when that happens. Uh, and so, to call a church who is really uncertain about whether or not this church is going to be your home church in the next 12 months or, 
or your plans to move somewhere else um, in the immediate future. It's very difficult to sow a long-term vision when so much about the future feels uncertain. And so what I want to call our church family to is to sow into a vision that perhaps you may not see the immediate fruit of, that you may not get to experience for yourself but that you can lay a foundation for future generations who might come after you. So perhaps you're a uni student who uh, is moving back to your regional centre as you finish university or you're moving to another part of our city for work and you think, well, I may not be here, but what about the next student who lands in Sydney and knows no one and is searching for community and is lonely and then happens to find Anchor Church because they've walk past a sign on a footpath or they've seen a, a, a building that has signage on it. They say, I'll check that church out. And they come and they find community, an authentic, real community, and, and they grow in their faith. We received um, uh, an anonymous external donation at the start of this year of $11,000. When we, for, I don't know if you remember, back in Feb- February, we launched this, you know, Build the House vision and we were hoping to do our, our big capital campaign around June. And um, th- this very, very generous external donor has given us $11,000 and I asked them to write a little testimony as to why they wanted to support us. And this is what they said. I want to read it out to you because it was so encouraging. They said this, We recently watched Anchor's live stream where Pastor Matt shared the Build the House vision. Even though we are not members of Anchor and live interstate, God strongly impressed upon us to give towards this vision. More specifically, God revealed to us that our offering would spur others on as well. God reminded us of the testimony from the director of the TV series, The Chosen, where he said, All we have to do is present to God our best five loaves and two fishes and leave the outcome to him. He will multiply our gifts and use them for his kingdom purposes. We truly believe in Anchor's godly vision for a physical home because Anchor is a spiritual home to so many young adults working and living away from home, some experiencing loneliness, some anxiety. God loves and sees every single person in the Anchor family. And we are so excited to see how God will bring this vision to fruition. Here is someone who will never experience the blessing of having a midweek space like we will who are still here whenever this purchase happens. Someone who is actually not even a part of our community, who doesn't even live in Sydney or New South Wales, but believes in the vision and wants to sow into this vision and lay a foundation so that future generations might be blessed. And so church, I want to I call every single one of you who calls Anchor Home to prayerfully consider the part that you can play in sowing into a vision that maybe you not, may not benefit from directly, but that you might bless someone who comes and sits in the chair that you're sitting in in two or three years' time. Would you prayerfully consider what you can do to build the house here at Anchor Church and to help put us in a position to purchase property? All of the steps are laid out here in our little Build the House brochure. There's a lot more to say about how we prepare for that. They're all the mechanics, the transactional things uh, that are outlined in here. But please, please, please take that home. If you are ready to give today, you can do so by scanning the QR code on the Connect card there. Uh, Make sure you select uh, Building Fund in the PushPay app as you want to give towards that. Don't just put it in general giving. Make sure you select Building Fund so that we can provision it for Build the House.
So I want to commend that to you guys. Um, I want to pray for us now as we uh, jump into God's word. So please join me as I pray. Father, we thank you for your abundant good generosity. As we heard last week, a God who has been so rich in showering us with your blessings in creation, in salvation. You have been good to us beyond what we need and beyond what we deserve. And Father, this morning as we look at a piece of scripture that is particularly challenging for us, for me, God, I pray that you would help us to move beyond perhaps the discomfort that a passage like this creates for us and inspire in us a vision to be a radically countercultural, generous people that look exactly like the God we worship. Holy Spirit, we need you. So please do a work in us as we sit under your word. We pray that you would transform and change us. And we ask this in Jesus' strong name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, I mentioned this week I um, attended a, a funeral of a, a friend of mine, actually uh, one of my closest friends, younger brother, and um, actually, in, in fact, Lily, Lily Norris's cousin, for those of you who know Lily. His name was Matt. Uh, and very tragically, Matt passed away at age 30. He, um, he was a missionary living in Southeast Asia and had developed some very um, serious health complications, some migraines that um, were entirely crippling, meant he was in bed 24-7, couldn't do anything, and was medevaced back to Australia in the middle of uh, COVID last year. And very tragically, on his, uh, his mum's birthday, he, he didn't wake up. He simply went to bed on a Friday night and on Saturday morning didn't wake up and his father found him dead in his own bed in his family home. And um, I've been speaking to his, his older brother, Jono, in, in the last couple of weeks and um, it's funny, you know, like um, Jono is a successful business person in his own right and um, is, a, is a leader at, at their church and... Um, he was reflecting that his younger brother, Matt, is the younger brother that he wants to grow up to be like, that Matt was his hero in many ways. And he was saying to me, he said, you know, Matt, Matt passed away at 30 with almost no possessions. He almost owned nothing. And I said, what do you mean? He said, he actually gave away everything he had. He literally, everything that God blessed him with, he saw as a means to serving people and giving it away. And at age 30, he died with a laptop and a cheap car that he had just bought with his fiancée because they were planning on getting married in March. And then a couple of clothes in his wardrobe, which wasn't much. He died at age 30 with nothing to his name. Now, by every stretch of the measure, according to our secular narrative, that is a tragedy. And yet as the family sees it. And as we see it through the, the lens of the gospel, Matt lived a life well lived. It wasn't a tragedy because he lived his life completely sold out to the kingdom. He gave everything that he had, including moving away from his family, away from his church and away from his friends to serve the poor and needy in Southeast Asia and to share with them the good news of Jesus. He gave away everything he had and he died with almost no physical possessions. And it was a life well lived because he understood what it meant to live a life of radical generosity sold out for God's kingdom. 
And as I was reading the accounts of Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 in preparation for the sermon this week, it struck me that Matt got the vision for what it means to be a radically generous disciple of Jesus. And so I want to turn to Acts chapter 4 this morning and spend a bit of time there. You remember last week we laid the foundation that we worship a generous God, that he has been abundantly generous in creation. And I love the little artwork that Katie has designed for us with all of the colors there that reflect the the fact that God has created the whole spectrum of colors for us to enjoy and marvel at and see beauty and then turn into artworks and creation and clothing and food and all of the things that God has blessed us abundantly with. He has blessed us abundantly in his salvation, giving his very best, his one and only son, so that we might be made his, adopted into his family. That is an important foundation that we cannot move away from in this series. But before we dive into Acts chapter 4, I just want to lay a bit of historical context for us. What does it mean to be generous in the first century? What did wealth and poverty look like? How did it operate in first century culture? Well, in the first century, there was a form of charity called patronage, where very wealthy benefactors, as they were called, would give money to the poor, and in return, the poor would owe a social debt to those who were wealthy. There was reciprocity that had to be returned. There was honor that had to be given. There was servitude that had to be given in return. And you'll remember in in Luke chapter 11, Jesus kind of calls out the practice where he says, you know, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them and call themselves benefactors. And it's a very ironic term because the only person that benefited from first century generosity were the wealthy and the rich. They literally gave as a means of working their way up the social ladder, of gaining status and power and influence as more and more people were indebted to them and owed a social debt to their benefactor. It meant that generosity um, in the first century was not so much about giving, it was about getting. You gave in order to get. It was a transaction that you got something in return. And for many people, they would choose not to give to certain needs because you wouldn't get anything in return from that form of giving. In fact, in the first century, the Roman emperor was considered the supreme patron. The whole of Roman society was considered indebted to his generosity, the peace that he bought, his provision for people. And in this form of so-called generosity, possessions and power were leveraged to gain influence and for self-serving purposes. Now, it's probably all not, all, all, um, not all that different from the, you know, the donations that are given to political parties today to buy power and influence. Not much has changed in the last 2,000 years. But what did change in the first century was a small group of people called Christians came along and started to turn the system upside down. Because they started to give without any desire for receiving in return. Reciprocity just was not a part of the equation of the first Christians' generosity. They gave without expecting anyone to give that back. They gave to meet need. They gave to be generous. And so much so that it posed a threat to Rome. It posed a threat to the emperor himself. Because no longer was he the one 
who was um, creating a system of indebtedness where people were looking to the emperor and to the Roman Empire to support them and for their security. Now a small group of radically generous individuals were caring for the poor in a way that had been never cared for in the past. Tim Keller has a famous quote where he says in the first century, uh, every, practically everyone gave their body to anyone and their money to nobody. And along came the Christians and they gave their body to nobody and their money to practically anyone. A radically generous community. Well, I want to take a little snapshot, a picture of the early church in Acts chapter 4. So if you want to keep your Bibles open there or turn your eyes to the screen. And it's important to not romanticize the early church, right? They're not perfect. Um, Not everything that we read in Acts is stuff that we should be doing. But there are some beautiful biblical principles here that we can see that I want to draw out here from Acts chapter 4. And the first is that the, the generosity of the early church is the fruit of the ministry and fullness of the Spirit in the life of the church. What we see happen in, in Acts chapter 2, at the end of Acts chapter 2 and the end of Acts chapter 4, Luke gives us two summary accounts of the early church. And both of them follow immediately after the outpouring of the Spirit. So you remember Acts chapter 2, the church is gathered. Um, they're all in the upper room. The Holy Spirit falls upon the apostles and the believers and tongues of fire are above their heads and they're speaking in other languages and tongues. And then immediately after that, Luke gives us a little summary of the church. They live together. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the cornonia, the the breaking of bread and to prayer. And God blessed them. They found favor. They were generous. They were looking after each other. And the Lord added to their number daily. You get this little summary statement of the church. And the same thing happens in Acts chapter 4. So you remember Acts chapter 3, Peter and John heal a blind person. Uh, They start preaching the resurrection. The Sanhedrin throws them into jail. They haul them before the Sanhedrin. They warn them not to speak in the name of Jesus. They completely disregard the same men that killed Jesus. And then they have a church prayer meeting together at the end of Acts chapter 4. And uh, there's a Holy Ghost earthquake that breaks out. The place where they're praying is shaken. The Spirit falls upon the church community. And they go out. They boldly speak the name of Jesus. And then Luke gives us a little summary statement of the church, which is what we read here. And in both of those things, what Luke draws out, the nature of the church that he draws out, is that they had everything in common and they were crazy generous towards each other. And so it's important for us to understand that this is a supernaturally empowered community. As they step out into radical generosity, this is the ministry and the fullness of the Spirit in tangible form. So what happens? Let's have a look at verse 32. It says there, All the believers were in one heart and mind. Were one in heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. There is a deep spirit of unity amongst the early church there. And you notice there it says all of the believers, or in, in fact, in some of your translations, it might say the full number of the believers, right? And what Luke's trying to say is there's a lot of them. Remember back in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people got saved on the first Sunday, on the first sermon, right? By now, the church community has been growing. Some say it could be upwards of about 10,000 people. And Luke is saying that this big church by now, 
is united. There is a deep sense of spiritual unity. They're one in heart and mind. They're a, a family that's deeply committed to each other, authentic community with a shared sense of purpose and a, and a, un, a sense of unity that have been bound together by the, blood of the Jesus, by the blood of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit. And this sense of unity that they're experiencing here, it's not just a vibe. It's not just, yeah, we're family. You know, it's, it's tangible. It's real. Because it's so real, so much so that people didn't claim their own possessions as their own. And they shared everything they had. Now, I think we're quite familiar now with the sharing economy. You know, that's a part of the last 10 years of our lives. And you know, there's so much said about how millennials will live in the future and you know, personal possessions will become less and less of a thing. We're familiar with GoGet and all of the bike sharing companies and street libraries where you can take a book and put one there. And all this kind of stuff's being, you know, it, it's, it's cool at the moment. It's, um, it's fun and it's experimental, but it has got nothing on the early church. All of the things that we see there, they are, they are financial models that make money, right? GoGet doesn't lose money. The bike, um, maybe the bike companies do. I don't know how they make any money because no one seems to ride them. They just sit there and rust. But, but they're, they're business models that make money, right? The giving and the generosity in the early church had no sense of, I'm going to earn this back. I'm going to get back from this. This was rich generosity where people saw their possessions and their assets and the blessings that God had given them as we truly should. They're not mine. They don't belong to me. In fact, every gift, every perfect gift comes from above. It's all of God's anyway. And so they began to share their things. And it's grace that has motivated this radical generosity. This is not obligation. This is not like some cult leader who's come along and said, just sign everything over to me and God's going to bless your life and join this little community and then there's aliens living behind the sun. And, you know, like it's not, that's not the scenario that's happening here. In act, this is a freely motivated, spirit-empowered community. It's motivated by grace. Have a look at verse 33. With great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. What motivated the early church? It wasn't obligation. It wasn't a system of patronage that, that said, if you give, you'll get back. It wasn't, you know, they were swept up in the first century's incredible culture of philanthropy and generosity. It was none of those things. Now, what motivated the early church was they had encountered the love of God. And that they had seen their spiritual debt cancelled at the cross. And that they'd seen the fact that they'd been set free. And out of the overflow of the goodness of God, this church began to live motivated by the grace of God. By the, the you know, the word, the, the, I'm just going to talk about the Greek for a second here. But the Greek word for grace is charis, charity generosity it overflowed in them you know it's it's um 
not a secret that in the first century, when you became a Christian, when you became a disciple of Jesus, a follower, an apprentice, it was costly. For many people, the decision to be a disciple of Jesus meant that perhaps you would lose your family. They would, they would literally kick you out of the home. They would disown you. You would maybe lose your job. Or if you're a business owner, many people would not want to do business, any, business with you anymore. They would not want to trade with you. There was a real material financial cost to being a disciple of Jesus in the first century. And so for many, those who could, those who were wealthy, would give to those who were in need. And it says there in verse 34 that there was no needy person among them. That's incredible. A church, a mega church, a church of thousands, and there was no needy person among them. People think that that phrase there, no needy person, it's an echo of Deuteronomy 15. And if you've read Deuteronomy 15, perhaps you haven't recently, but Deuteronomy 15 is where Moses lays out um, uh, the, the laws around Jubilee and the Sabbath year. So one of the laws that God had given his people is that every seventh year, you would cancel the debts of your, your brothers, your, your brothers and sisters, your fellow Hebrew. You would cancel their debts on the seventh year. It was the Sabbath year. On the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, property would be handed back and everything would kind of reset. And so many people think that this phrase is so close to what the, the writer says in Deuteronomy 15. There's no needy people among you. That was what was the result of the Sabbath year, the seventh year, was that there would be no needy people, that debts would be cancelled, that things would be reset. And here we see a beautiful picture of the early church and its reality for them. There were no needy people among them. But the early church didn't just practice this every seven years. This was an everyday reality. They immediately acted to meet the needs of those in their community. Have a look at what it says, verse 34 again. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to everyone who has need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the the apostles called Barnabas, which means son, son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, I don't know about how you feel um, as those verses are read out, but in Sydney in 2021, in the midst of a housing crisis and a, and a boom in the housing market, that sounds ridiculous. Like who in their right mind would sell property? Everyone's trying to buy property at the moment because it's increasing in value so significantly and so quickly. Why would anyone sell property? And my guess is, I don't, I don't really know the property market of you know, Jerusalem in the first century. Um, that's just a little bit above my pay grade. But my guess is that was as crazy in the first century as it is now. And maybe now the degree of crazy is a little bit more, but it's still radical. It's still crazy for someone to sell their property, to liquidate their assets and give it to the church and say, use it, use it to care for the people in this community who are in need. Their generosity was sacrificial, costly and substantial. And Luke gives us 
a personal example of someone who's been generous. Right? He's not afraid to give a name. His name's Joseph. He's a Levite. He's a priest. And, and traditionally, priests didn't own property, according to the law. But um, Joseph, for whatever reason, owned a, a field. He owned a, a plot of land. And he comes and he sells the field and he liquidates his assets and he gives it to the church. He says, use this to bless those who are in need. And Joseph gets the nickname Barney or Barnabas. Uh, and it means son of encouragement. And you kind of guess where you get where he got the nickname from, right? Because what an encouraging act of generosity. I can't tell you how encouraged I felt when Brad rang me one Monday morning. He said, hey, I've just, I've just gone to the letterbox to pick up the mail. And there is a check for $10,000 in there from a supporter who wants to support the building. You know, that was so encouraging to me. You imagine the early church receiving the, the, the proceeds of Joseph's sale of his property, how encouraging that would be. He is a son of encouragement. And that's probably just one of the ways that Joseph was encouraging. Now, it's at this point in the sermon that the preachers will start to roll out the caveats, right, to this. And the caveats are important. But before I jump to the caveats, let me just pause here for a second and admit that this kind of radical generosity challenges our notions of generosity, doesn't it? Like, isn't this a challenging story to hear for us? I don't know about you, but I've been convicted about the way I think about generosity this week. Not, not just as I've been preparing this, but as I've been listening to the stories of Matt Anderson's life and the way he lived. Challenged. And I reckon that's why Luke wrote it. He, he didn't write it so we could explain it away with our, our caveat. He wrote it to challenge us. And he's given us an example to say, this is what it looks like. And he'll give another example a bit later on in chapter 5 of what it doesn't look like. And we'll get to that in a second. But, but I want to say we can't run too quickly from the challenge of this passage. So here are my caveats. The first is that this was occasional liquidation of assets. You notice in verse 34, it says there, from time to time. This was not a requirement for membership of the early church, that you had to sell everything you had and hand it over to the church leaders. Right, this is not a form of proto-communism. This is not a community of goods that perhaps the Anabaptists pushed for post the Reformation. This isn't, and look, there are monastic communities, particularly um, a community called the Qumran community, which, which developed in the first century that required you literally to sign away all of the assets in your life and live community from a common purse. And, and none of that is what happened in the early church. This was occasional giving. As a need arose, people who had the ability to, like Joseph, would sell their assets and give it to those who were in need. The second thing to say about this is that land ownership was not a problem. Right? Land ownership, property ownership, wealth were not the problems here. We encounter uh, an example that Luke will give us in chapter 5 of a couple called Ananias and Sapphira. They also had property. They also had assets. They also liquidated their assets and brought it to the apostles and something very profound happened. They literally fell dead on the floor as, as Peter 
called out their sin. But this is what happens in Acts chapter 5, verse 3. Have a look. Then Peter said to Ananias, How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you would receive for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? You see what Peter's saying? It's yours. The problem was not that they had wealth. The problem was not that they had property. The problem was not that they liquidated. The problem was they lied about it and deceived both the church and they tried to deceive God, which is dumb because you can't do that. So the problem isn't wealth. The problem isn't land ownership. The problem isn't assets. Land ownership was okay. In fact, a little bit further on, it will say that the church continued to meet in their homes. There were clearly people who still owned homes in the other church. There were clearly people who were wealthy, very wealthy. We encounter Lydia, a very successful dealer in purple cloth. She is the highest of high fashion in Acts chapter 14. She was a convert in the church. We encounter wealth. We encounter business owners. We encounter property owners. The problem is not ownership of assets and wealth the problem is what we do with it finally we also need to remember that in the first century as is true today to to an extent most people's wealth was tied to their assets the culture was less of a cashless uh, a cash driven culture like we are they didn't have their westpac everyday everyday saver full of disposable income right they carried purses with coins and you didn't carry large sums of money because it was dangerous. There was highway robbery. There were pirates. There were people that wanted to steal your coins, your denarius. You carried what you needed to pay the tax man as you entered the city at the city gate. You carried what you needed to conduct your business. You certainly didn't you know, tap your credit card on the ATM machine. And, and so it's a, just, it's a different culture. And so at times, people needed to liquidate assets to free up money to support those who were in, who were in need. Now, none of that reduces the challenge of this passage, of this story, of Barnabas's generosity. So deep was the unity in this church that at times people did crazy things like sell property, sell assets, and give the proceeds to those who were in need. Now, it's important for us to recognize that at this stage of the story, we're just talking about the way that the church treated each other. We're not even talking about how they cared for the poor and the needy outside of the church. And that certainly happens, right? But this is the way that the church cared for each other. This was the, the tone of the early church. Remember in um, Galatians 6, Paul says, Do good to all people, but especially the household of faith. We have an obligation to care for our spiritual family. John will say in 1 John, how can you look at a brother's needs and turn away and not meet those needs? We are are family. And one of the expressions of family is that we care for each other. So what would it look like for us, church? Well, I'm not saying for the 5% of you in our church family who are homeowners, sell your house and just deposit all the money into the anchor bank account. Although if God leads you to that, I'm not going to say no, all right? But um, that is not the direct application of this passage. But what would it look like for you? We've got a bunch of people in different life stages, different, um, different backgrounds, different wealth portfolios, 
But God has given all of us something. He's put something in our hand. What does it look like for you to use what God has blessed you with to bless our community? How do we embody this radical generosity of the early church? I want to say we are. I have seen this happening. One of the beautiful privileges that I have as pastor of this church is seeing snippets of generosity that are kept private, that people do, that they don't want to, you know, they're not willing to share their story. They don't want to let their right hand, let their left hand know what's happening. And, and it's, it's beautiful to get a little window into what's happening. We, we saw the stories. These were only the ones on the video before that people were willing to share. And, you know, some people like, look, I just can't share the story or we didn't have permission to share the story. But there are countless other stories just like the ones that have been shared on the, the screen this morning. I was talking to Paul, the director for Compassion, um, and he was saying that the last two years of Compassion Sundays that Anchor have done are some of the best Compassion Sundays that he has seen of any church in Sydney in the last two years. Just this year, we were able to sponsor, I think, another, was it 17 or 18 new children, releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. Almost 50% of our church family have a or multiple sponsored children. That's incredible. We are literally changing people's lives in Cebu City. You know, as uh, Ruth mentioned on the video this morning, just this year, our church gave over $7,000 to meet the medical needs of Lovely, uh, a pastor's daughter in the Philippines where Scotty and Ruth are working and hoping to return soon. And uh, Scotty sent me a picture of Lovely this week. She, she needs our prayers. She's very unwell. She... Um, Man, she, so the, the, the doctors want to start chemotherapy on her to treat her cancer. They can't do that until she puts on weight. And she, is, she just looks so unwell. She's so thin. And they're trying to feed her through a drip. But she, church, she needs our prayers as well. And you guys have been so incredibly generous this year. What does it look like for us? Not to use our possessions and, and our assets and our power to increase our standard of living, to increase our, our social status, to increase our power, but as an act of service? What does it look like for us to be a people who would live lives like our Savior Jesus, who would be willing to lay it all down in the service of others? You know, um, I, I think there's a, a bunch of creative ways that we can do that. Are we not the people of God, filled with the Spirit of God, worshipping the most creative person ever? The God who created this world in such abundance, can't we dream and pray and follow the leading of the Spirit to be creative in the way that we live this out? And it's happening. I've seen it happen. We are a church full of Barnabases. We're a church of people who want to care for those in our community. You, you may not realize this, but I was contacted both at the start of lockdown last year and at the start of lockdown this year. I was contacted by, by many people from our church saying, hey, just so you know, if there are people who lose their jobs, if there are people who can't pay rent, can you let me know? Because we would like to give and help. We want to do it anonymously, but if there's anyone who's in need, we would like to give. And you know what I had to say to people? I'm really sorry, but GCs have cared for people too well. 
that there are no needy people among us. I've heard stories of people who have had um, their rent paid, car insurance paid for, car insurance premiums paid for when they've been in car accidents and they couldn't afford it. We have seen countless families blessed with meals. And we, uh, we have had people from our church pay for months and months of psychology sessions for people who needed it because they saw a need for someone who was so wrestling so deeply. And they thought, you know what, if this person gets the help that they need, their life could be changed. And people have given and given. And you know how expensive psychology sessions are? Months and months and months of weekly psychology sessions so that people could be cared for. But I want to close this morning with two brief stories as, as the band comes up. I want to share a story of, um, of generosity that just blew me away. Before we planted Anchor, I was a youth pastor at a very large multi-ethnic church in the western suburbs of Sydney. And um, uh, as we, we had a, a you know, big Sunday before we left and, and people were celebrating us leaving, and I, and I had a, a mum, a single mum from the church come up to me. She had three kids who came through our youth ministry she was recently divorced. Her husband had left her for another woman and, and she was left with three children, no job and a mortgage on a house. And I knew her circumstances and she came to me and she said, Matt, you know, I've just been so blessed by your ministry over the years and my three children have been so blessed coming through this youth ministry over the last 10 years. And I felt God compel me to support your church plant. And at that moment, I, I just wanted to say, no, 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 you can't do that. You, you can't afford to do this. And she said, I don't have much money. I was like, uh-huh, I know. She said, but I, I really feel led to support your church. And I can only afford $60 a month. And I'm like trying to hold back the tears and the waterworks are coming. And I'm hugging her. I'm like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And everything in me wanted to say no. And I think God stopped me from saying no because... She is, for me, the widow who threw her last couple of pennies in the temple offering. And I didn't want to rob the honor that God saw in her act of generosity from her. The other act of generosity, which has blown me away as well, is, um, is actually a story of Brad and Catherine Koneman. And I've asked permission to share this story this morning. And, and you know, we've already heard their generosity uh, from Robin and, and Lisette Volpe this morning on the screen. But... I didn't realize this one um, until a few years ago, but when we first started Anchor and I asked Brad and Catherine if they would come with us on this crazy journey of planting a church, um, they said yes. Brad was starting full-time more college, um, going to study. They just had their first child. Eva was a baby. Catherine wasn't working. College is expensive. Living in the city is expensive. And I said to Brad, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I don't think I can pay you at this stage. And he said, that's fine. We're still in. We believe. But, but thankfully, God blessed us enough before we launched that I was able to give Brad a very measly first year salary here at Anchor Church. And I, I don't even know what it was. I think it was somewhere in the vicinity of six to $8,000. And I didn't find this out till years later when, um, when someone very sneakily just passed me some information that I wasn't supposed to know. But... Um, but I found out that Brad and Catherine gave their entire first year wage back to the church. In a moment where they had need, studying full time, living in the inner city, expensive cost of living, neither of them had jobs. And they gave the whole thing back. 
I didn't know it here. I'm thinking I'm being so generous to Brad, giving him a job. And, and Brad and Catherine, for me, are an example of radical generosity. They are a Barnabas, a son and daughter of encouragement for our church. And I, I share their story not as a humble brag and uh, not as a way of puffing them up, but as a way of inspiring our church to live radically generous lives motivated by the Spirit, moved by the grace of God and positioned to meet the needs of those in our community, in our city who so desperately need it. And church, my prayer is that we would continue to do what God has been doing in our lives as a church. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, we thank you that you are so abundantly good to us. You are generous. You have blessed us. God, I thank you for the ways that you have blessed our church in countless acts of generosity over the years. The stories that we've heard shared this morning, the ways that mums have been blessed with meals, new mums have been blessed with meals, the way that people have been blessed with car trips and car loans and rent has been paid for and, and the way that we are able to live out our identity as family, as community. God, I thank you for that. And I pray by by the power of the name of Jesus and in the grace of God and empowered by your spirit, you would continue to help us be a church that is radically generous, that the watching world would look on and see this church is crazy. Help us to see, God, that every blessing that you have given us comes from above. It's not ours, it's yours. And you have given us these blessings to steward for our joy and for the good of other people around us. Stir this in us, Father, we pray. In Jesus' strong name and all of God's people said, Amen, Amen. Bless you, church.